0: Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 14 and uh, hold your spot there. We're going to be there in just a little bit. Uh, but before we get into the Scriptures, uh, I wanted to uh, ask you guys a question. Uh, how, many, uh, how many trash cans do you have at home? How many, how, many, how many waste cans do you actually put out on the street? How many? Two? Three? How many put out one? Okay, a few. How many put out two? And how many put out three? Three? How many put out four? Perry and Doug, you put out four. Five? Anybody? Five? No? Alright, alright. Well friends, my, uh, my grandmother, her name was Ellen. and uh, it, Her name was? Her name is Ellen. My grandmother's not passed, my goodness. I'm sorry grandma if you're listening to this one day. Her name is Ellen. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman. And I'll tell you, she got real frustrated one day when the uh, garbage company decided to go from one trash can to three. And she wrote a poem about it. It's a poem called, We've Been Had. We've Been Had by Ellen Anderson. I want to read this to you. Sit back and enjoy. She, She writes this, Never take for granted the simple things of life, For before you know it, along comes stress and strife. I was getting on quite fine, just discarding all my trash. One garbage can sufficient. I was doing nothing rash. Then garbage company came along with their ultimate decree. Instead of one simple garbage can, they decided to give me three. Oh, they sent along a little chart explaining blue, green, and gray. Bins for this and that and the other, and mind just what they say. Don't put plastic into blue unless they have a logo. Paper, yes, they say that's fine, but newspapers are a no-go. They are to go into the gray, and for this I guess I'm glad. No use recycling the news, for most of it is bad. I'm all for conservation, but some doesn't make sense to me. Instead of one trip for the garbage, they must now make two or three. All my leisure time is gone. I'm really in a funk. I have to make decisions of where to cast my junk. Used to be on garbage day, the street was state of art. But now when company comes along, there is no place to park. Here stands all three garbage cans. Count them. One, two, three. They must be spaced three feet apart and arranged precisely. Once I had a nightmare. I was in such disgrace. My name was in the paper. My garbage I'd displaced. I had put some plastic in gray instead of blue. For this, I was a felon. And they really meant to sue. Now I'm not my happy self. I'm all groans and grumps. And along with my garbage, I'm way down in the dumps. I called and asked permission this morning if I could read that one. She said, oh, I've got much better Christian poems. I said, no, Grandma, I'm not looking for a Christian poem. A lot of truth to that poem, huh? We've been had. My grandmother got frustrated, you know, because because uh, she didn't know where to put her trash after after the garbage company came along. By the way, she sent that to the garbage company, and they sent over a representative who handed her a uh, who handed her a kind of like a trophy of some kind with the three garbage cans <laughs> on it. <laughs> and and also a, a free one month. Uh, garbage bill. So that was pretty good. That was pretty good. You ever want a free garbage bill? You know, just send this over. She didn't know where to put her trash. You know, She had gotten older and she's like, what's going on here? I don't know where to put this waste here. Where, where, what, which, one, which one do I put it in? Well, friends, today in our story in Mark, uh, we are going to be considering a, a simple story. A simple story. And the title of my message today is A Tale of Good Use and waste. A tale of good use and waste. One story is a story about using something well. Another story is a story about throwing something away. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're going to read together uh, this passage Taking it verse by verse. We'll just start with the first two verses today for now. Let's turn to Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, a tale of good use and waste. Mark 14, verse 1. Jesus says this, or excuse me, Mark's writing, and then later on we're going to hear Jesus. Mark says, After two days it was the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take Jesus by trickery. And put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Now, we've been going through our, our uh, study in Mark. We've been in this study for a great deal now. And finally, we're coming, friends, to the final days of Jesus' life. In fact, uh, this is perhaps the day before, uh, the day before Passover. Actually, this is two days before Passover. And after two days was the Passover. Now, uh, in these days prior to this great feast, the Jewish religious leaders are found conspiring. They're found conspiring together against Jesus yet again. And this is certainly not the first time they've done so. Uh, They've come together many, many times, in some cases to try and trick Jesus in his teaching, in some cases to try and trip up him in his authority. In other cases they came seeking his death, like in Mark chapter three, verse six. Mark says that these religious leaders considered how they would lay hold of Jesus by means of trickery. Trickery. And back in Mark twelve, I don't know if you remember, but just two chapters ago, we read story after story after story of the religious leaders trying to trick Jesus. Trick Him in His teaching. Trip up His teaching. They tossed all kinds of difficult theological questions at him, hoping that Jesus would trip in His words and lose credibility in the eyes of the people. But Jesus answered every single one of their challenges. Their theological tricks did not discredit His authority. But here they're up to new tricks. Not a trick to discredit Him, but a trick to destroy Him. And as they mold over their plans, one thing was clear. As they conspired together, one thing was clear. One thing they all agreed on. And that is, whatever we do, let let us not do it during the feast. Whatever we do, let us not do it during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. What feast? What feast are we talking about? We're speaking of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That has its roots, this, this, this feast, this seven-day event, actually eight-day event in the Jewish calendar, the first day being Passover and the uh, uh, consequent seven being the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is where it gets its roots. Take a look at Exodus chapter 12. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be be to you a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Friends, this was back in the day before before Israel had left Egypt. The plagues had come upon Egypt. And now they were approaching the last and final plague, the killing of all the firstborn sons in Egypt. And God gave instruction through Moses to Israel. He said, this is how you're going to avoid this plague. This is how your people, Israel, are going to avoid this plague. You're going to take a Passover lamb and you're going to slaughter it. And you're going to take that blood and you're going to wipe it on the top of the doorpost and along the side of the doorposts. And when you do, that night, the angel of the Lord, who is coming to slay all the firstborn sons of wicked Egypt, will pass over your doors. The Feast of Passover. And of course, the next day, Israel jumped up in haste and left Egypt. Hence, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They didn't even have time for their bread to rise. And so, this this week long feast with Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was meant to commemorate the passing over of the angel of the Lord over their doors, not slaying Israel's firstborn, and the quick haste with which they left Egypt. Now, I'm going to leave it at that. There's so much that could be said about Passover. And I'm actually, we're going to stop there because our church is going to be bringing in a special, special speaker. The, on Palm Sunday, his name is Cyril Gordon. He's with Jews for Jesus, and he is going to go into an elaborate discussion of the Feast of Passover. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna prepare elements as back in the day, like the like the Jews would have, and we're going to, as a community, uh, we're gonna learn a great deal about this special Jewish celebration. So mark your calendars, Palm Sunday. We're gonna have a real special treat in learning more about this this celebration of Passover. But to sum it up, the feast was about mercy. It was about mercy. About God passing over His people. It was not a time to kill or condemn. It was a time to show mercy. And thus, we later read in Mark 15, verse 6, of the tradition that the people would release a prisoner. Remember that? Why why was Pilate offering to release Jesus Because Pilate knew during the the Feast of Unleavened Bread that the Jewish people had grown accustomed to showing mercy to one prisoner. And they would release one prisoner. And so Pilate asked in, in Mark 15, he says, what about Jesus? Do you want me to release Him during the Feast of Unleavened Bread? They said, no, 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 not Him. Barabbas. Let's release Him instead. It was a Feast of Mercy. And they released a prisoner during the during this feast as a symbol of God's mercy toward them in leaving Egypt. Now meanwhile, while the Jewish leaders are plotting and conspiring, Jesus and His disciples make their way to Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. It's likely that this story that we're about to read in verse 3 is slightly out of order chronologically. Because John indicates that this, this event happened just before the triumphal entry. Um, but nevertheless... Uh, Mark puts it here strategically to contrast it in the story that we're reading. So take a look at verse 3 here. Meanwhile, Jesus and His disciples make their way toward Bethany. And there was a story that that was told there just during this this final week of Jesus' life. It says this in verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus sat at the table, a woman came, Having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. She broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were, oh, we'll stop right there. She broke the flask and poured it on his head. Now we have some characters here. We have Simon the leper, we have a woman, and of course we have this, this lavish gift that she offers to Jesus. We don't uh, surely know who Simon the leper was, this is his only mention in Scripture. He might have been the leper Jesus healed in Mark 1. He might have been one of the ten lepers Jesus healed in Luke 17. The only one that came back to thank Jesus. Nevertheless, we find that Jesus is at this man's house. You might think it odd that he's at a leper's house, right? Weren't the lepers uh, kept away from the rest of the community? Well, it's likely that they're speaking in terms of past tense. Simon, who was a leper. And so Jesus and his disciples and a crowd would have gathered with this man because Simon, who was a leper, had now been healed, probably by Jesus Christ. The woman. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, John identifies the woman as Mary Mary, the sister of Martha and sister of Lazarus. Mary held in her hand a clear stone vase containing precious oil of spikenard, which was a a very valuable ointment, a very valuable perfume, probably imported from the East to perhaps India. And having every intention to use all of its contents, Mary actually broke the vase and poured it on Jesus' head. Now, that might seem kind of odd to us in the 21st century, someone uh, breaking a perfume bottle and pouring it on someone's head. But back in the ancient Near East, uh, this was a very fitting symbol. You see, oil on the head was could could identify a couple things. Number one, it would identify kingship. Remember Samuel, the prophet Samuel, anointed David's head with oil. Kingship. A second use of anointing with oil was to prepare for burial, to prepare a body for burial, and so in these two senses, kingship and and burial, we see that Mary's gesture toward Jesus was a very, very fitting gesture. Very appropriate to the circumstances. Seeing as how Jesus was king and was about to die. But not all thought Mary's gesture was appropriate. Take a look at verse 4. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, 'Why, why this... Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. The word indignant there means angry. It means downright angry. Not just a a simple kind of frustration. A group was angry at Mary for her gesture. Who was this group? Once again, the Gospel of John indicates that it was actually Judas who spoke these words, but also that many other of the disciples shared his sentiment. So Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus, was the one who spoke these words, but many others, many others in the room, many others at the table, including many of the disciples, were sharing his sentiment as Mary poured this unbelievably expensive, Oil on Jesus' head. They were indignant, downright angry. They criticized her sharply. An entire flask of precious eastern oil on one man's head? What a waste! Surely a smaller amount could have served its purpose. Had you sold the rest, we could have given 300 denarii to the poor. A year's worth of wages to the poor. But no, you chose to waste it on one man, rather than bless countless others. What a waste! What a waste! I want to pause here for a moment, because in this in this moment, I, I find um, I find a lesson that um, that I've learned, and that I think others of us um, could it would be helpful to learn. I want to ask you the question, have you ever passed judgment on the generosity of another? Have you ever passed judgment on the generosity of another? Have you ever questioned their judgment with respect to who or what cause they decided to give to? I think... uh, I think it's safe to say, and I know it's safe to say because I've been in conversations where uh, uh, it's it's been a topic of discussion. I think it's safe to say that some of us, uh, and I, I think I've, I've fallen prey to this in, in my past, uh, hopefully a lesson that I've now learned, but some of us are tempted to inwardly mock those who give to people or organizations or causes which we feel are less deserving than other people, organizations, or causes. For instance, we might think it's silly for anyone to donate to a, to a church or a school building fund when there are an infinite number of needs in third world countries, like starvation and, and fighting AIDS and, and, and fighting any, any kind of disease. And I think it's, it's for some of us, it's, it's sometimes the case that we look at someone else's gift or we look at some, uh, some fund or some donation that, that a church or a school is, is amassing and they're saying, give to this, and we think, why? Look at all these needs over here. We think, what? that's so much less deserving than an infinite number of other needs I could show you in Africa or in Haiti or, or wherever. You ever felt that way? Some of us, like Judas and the disciples, might think there are bigger and better needs out there. And to be perfectly honest, sometimes we're right. There are bigger and better needs out there. But, but, and this is the lesson, but as Jesus is soon going to show us, in his response to Judas and the disciples, Note this and note this well. God is less impressed by our ability to critically assess the greatest needs and more impressed when we simply give from the heart to those in need. Let me say that again. God is less impressed by our own ability to critically assess the greatest needs and more impressed when we simply give from the heart to those in need. I believe that is a huge lesson that we're about to, to learn from Jesus' words in verses six through nine. And so, friends, regardless of how astute you are in critically assessing the greatest needs, regardless of, of this aura of superiority you might have in saying, Why give to that when you have this, this, and that? Regardless of, of that, that mindset, that that perspective needs to be humbled. That perspective needs to be brought low. And we need to realize, as Jesus is going to show us here, that until we begin to give, we've accomplished nothing. So critical assessment of what is the greatest need out there is not all that, well, important. Notice Jesus' response. His response to the anger and criticism of Judas and the disciples for the seemingly waste of oil. Take a look at verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for Me. For you have the poor with you always. Whenever you wish, you may do good to them. But Me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. But because she has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial, assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Jesus says, Leave her alone. What she has done for me is good. In fact, in verse 7, notice verse 7 so very carefully, because in verse 7, Jesus sure seems to indicate. That Mary has actually given to the greatest need. Let me say that again. Verse 7 sure seems to indicate that Mary has actually given to the greatest need. He says, You'll always have the poor, you'll always have them. But my earthly presence, my earthly presence with you is coming to an end. It seems to me that he's saying, Hey, the poor is not in comparison right now to her giving to Me." And herein lies the great irony, friends. Judas and the disciples were convinced, they were utterly convinced that giving this oil to the poor was superior to pouring it on Jesus' head. They were utterly convinced that this woman had wasted the oil on Jesus' head. And Jesus here says, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. she, She has not wasted this precious oil. In fact, she's made the best use of it. She's made good use of this oil. Friends, we are fallen, sinful men and women. And we are not always able, regardless of what we might think, we are not always able to accurately assess whose needs are greater than another's. So once again, God is less impressed by our ability to critically assess the greatest needs And more impressed when we simply give from the heart to those in need. Now, I'm not suggesting here that that we give to people or organizations or or causes without any consideration of the legitimacy of the need. I'm not suggesting that. Of course, it's wise to consider whether the recipient, whether their need is indeed a genuine one. But we should not put too much stock or pride in our ability to. To assess the greatest need. Judas and the disciples erred. They erred greatly in assessing the greatest need. And so can we. So far be it from us to ever judge the gift of another simply because we feel there are bigger or better gifts or better needs out there. So impressed was Jesus... With Mary's gift, that look again what he said. He said in verse nine, "Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her." Our reading of this story right now is, a, is itself a fulfillment of Jesus' words. We are remembering a great gift, a lavish gift from a benevolent woman, and may we emulate her example to give. Switching scenes. Verse 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, having just recently been chastised by Jesus, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give Him money so he sought how he might conveniently betray Jesus. And remember, it wasn't but moments ago, if not maybe a few days ago, that the religious leaders had agreed not to lay hold of Jesus during the feast. Not during the feast. Whatever we do, not during the feast. But one man's offer changes their tune. Judas secretly meets with the Jewish religious leaders and for a promise of 30 pieces of silver, he offers to help them seize Jesus in the dark of night during the feast. It's likely that Judas was quite aware of, of uh, Jesus' itinerary for that week. He would know where Jesus was going to be. And so Judas's well thought out plan uh, convinced the religious leaders that they could in fact secretly arrest Jesus. Even during the week long feast. But they were careful. But they were careful. Because as you well know in the story they chose to arrest Him in the dark of night on Passover when all the town of Jerusalem was asleep. So they were still very, very careful in how they went about it. Soon after this conspiracy, Mark turns again to the day of Passover. He says this in verse 12, Now on the first day of unleavened bread... When they had killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to Jesus, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? Jesus sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city of Jerusalem and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the home, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large large upper room furnished and prepared and there make ready for us so the disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as Jesus had said to them and they prepared the passover as i said earlier i don't i don't want to spend too much time on the feast of passover but one other item is in order to to, to discuss and that is at Passover, friends, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews descended upon Jerusalem. Imagine, you know, almost like how at Christmas time, we all gather together with family and friends. We, many of us travel miles and miles and miles just to be with our family on Christmas Day. Friends, Passover was no different Jews from all over Israel would descend upon Jerusalem in particular to celebrate this great feast, Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so in the city, it was booked. All, all kinds of rooms, all kinds of hotel rooms, if you will, any kind of temporal housing, any, anybody that had a spare bed, it was booked on Passover. It was absolutely booked. If you went on Expedia.com and tried to reserve a hotel night on Passover, there were no rooms. Man, that didn't even go over well at all. Let me try that again, okay? Laugh for my grandma, okay? If you you went on Expedia.com and booked a hotel room on Passover, there'd be no rooms. Wow, alright. You hear that, Grandma? It's pretty funny. It was booked. It was crazy. The city was... Was just absolutely packed. No room. No room. No 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 spare rooms. No bedrooms. No nothing. And Jesus says, "Yeah, go into the city and uh, find this water pitcher guy and follow him. And you're going to come to a an open room, a fully prepared room, an empty room, a room where no one is going to eat but us. Friends, this is a miracle." This is an absolute miracle. Peter and and the disciple who went with them, according to John, they must have walked away from Jesus thinking, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. We're not going to find an open room on Passover. This is impossible. And sure enough, they enter the city and they find it just like Jesus says. Nothing is impossible for God. And the disciples find that room precisely as Jesus said. Verse 17. Verse 17. In the evening. Jesus came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with Me will betray Me. One of you who eats with Me will betray Me. And they began to be sorrowful and said to Him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? Now, the feast of Passover and unleavened bread It was a celebration of God's mercy to Israel. It was a time of unity for the nation. Thousands upon thousands descending upon Jerusalem. And in the midst of a joyous occasion, Jesus has some bad news. He says, one of you will betray Me. The disciples' hearts grow cold and sad. And after what was probably a... a, uh, a considerable amount of silence, they began to, one by one, muster up the strength to ask, is it I? Actually, the question in Greek is actually more of a a negative question in Greek. It's expecting a negative answer. It was probably more along the lines of, surely not me, Lord. Surely not me, Lord. Surely I'm not the one. Who is going to betray you? Now, you, you might think uh, that uh, they would have known if they were the one, right? You might, you might think, well, I would know if I was the betrayer. So, were these questions that legitimate? Were they heartfelt? Were they sincere? Friends, I speculate that the disciples asked this question with great fear in their soul. On so many occasions, their self-assurance was proven wrong. Not long before this moment, they thought that it was self-evident that Mary should have given her perfume to the poor rather than pour it on Jesus. They were self-assured. They were self-confident. They were convinced This is a no-brainer. Of course, it's better to give it to the poor than to pour it all on one man's head. They were dead wrong. Their gut instincts were dead wrong. And so now, while eleven of them had no intention of betraying Jesus, they were no longer at the point of trusting their own heart. I suspect their question, Surely not me, Lord, was teeming with fear and doubt of their own fidelity to Jesus Christ. I suspect they were terrified and did not know whether or not they were the one who would betray Him. But of course, one knew. Judas knew. He had already gone and before the chief priests and offered Jesus to them. Jesus continues, He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with Me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Jesus' words in verse 20 are significant. Particularly the phrase, "...who dips with Me in the dish." They hearken back to a psalm. You might want to write this down. I I didn't include it for you. Psalm 41, verse 9, in which David says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The Gospel of John indicates that, that this statement by Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 41, verse 9. Jesus concludes it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. In other words, in other words, Jesus says, "This man's life is a waste. It's a waste, a tale of good use and waste. Mary's gift of costly oil to her Lord appeared to be wasteful in the eyes of so many. But the Lord assured her that she had made good use of that gift. And oddly enough, the one who criticized her most sharply, the one who criticized Mary's actions most critically, was himself the one who was wasteful. Judas had wasted his very life. So great had he squandered his life that it would have been better, Jesus says, had he never been born. What can we learn from our story today? What are some simple truths from a simple story that we can take with us as we go forward? Uh, The first is this. As Jesus proved in verse 7 of our story today, prioritizing charitable needs is exceedingly difficult. Therefore, avoid inwardly or openly critiquing the prudence of another person's charitable giving. I think this is a tremendous lesson to learn from our story. The disciples, Judas, convinced that Mary had done wrong. What a waste of money. What a waste of your gift. Why give to that need when there are so many others? Friends, don't critique the judgment of another donor. Don't critique the judgment of another giver. Yeah, you might not think in your heart that that, that the need that they're meeting is, is altogether that significant. But you know what? Your heart lies sometimes. Your gut instincts aren't always right. And we are to meet the needs that are right before us rather than sit back and judge, well, he should have given over there. She should have given to that. No, let's get, let's get rid of that. Let's not critique the prudence of another person's donation. Secondly, give. Give. Mary sacrificed a year's worth of perfume for her Lord. Ask yourself, what am I giving to Him? Does my gift cost me something? And what I mean by that is, does, do I feel it when I give? I can assure you, when Mary gave a, a year's worth of perfume, she felt it. She felt it. It was painful. It was a gift that, that, that cost her greatly. She, her and her family had amassed those monies, and, and in, in, in five seconds, a year's worth of wages was gone. Think of your year's worth of wages. Imagine it gone in five seconds. Does your gift cost you something when you give it to God? Are you giving sacrificially? Third and finally, if we are to be accused of anything, let us be accused of lavish generosity toward our Lord and those in need. Better a wasted gift than a wasted life. Friends, let us be accused of being lavish givers. Generous givers. People will look at us and say, my goodness, that's ridiculous how much they gave. Let that be the thing that people accuse us of. Because so much better is lavish giving than a wasted, wasted life. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, simple story today that you've given to us, arranged in such a way that we would contrast them. You. Strategically put that in this in your word, Father, in a way that we would look at both Mary and Judas, and we would see the great gulf between them. Father, help us as a people to be like Mary and not Judas. Help us to be lavish givers. Let the accusation of others be that we give too much, we give too greatly. Let that be the crown on our heads, Father, as we give to You and as we give to those in need who are right before us. Father, may may we pour ourselves out giving greatly, costing us greatly, that Your kingdom might be enhanced, might be grown, might be furthered. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.